The only constant in life is change. Often the capricious winds of fate send us down a winding path. And in the words of the immortal David Byrne from Talking Heads, you often wake up and say, how did I get here? In today's episode of The Buck Stops Here, we're going to talk to Dr. Christy Swan, an expert in the air, the tides, and our changing coastlines with her company, Arcoast. And she's going to talk about that winding path of business that led her to where she is today. All that and more on The Buck Stops Here. This is the first time we've actually had a planetary scientist on the show. So cool. uh, so we're really excited to have her on the show today. We're really excited for you to be back here. So with that, without further ado, uh, Christy, welcome to the show. Ah, oh, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Well, we're so glad you're here today. So, okay, let's break this down for a minute, okay? So you, reading your background, your bio, you have kind of a non-traditional path to the sciences and furthermore yes. to starting your own business. Can you tell me yeah. a little bit about how you went from dance and became a planetary um, scientist, <laughs> geologist, and expert in wind studies, and now you're doing work on Mars with NASA. So tell me, how did you end up here? Yeah, uh, I ended up uh, here from complete failure. So I danced from age four until about 20. So I went to college for dance. I was known in my tiny, my tiny small town for dancing. And, you know, when you're good at something, you just keep doing it. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go to school for dance. Well, when I went to college, I, you know, I got in, got into the dance school um, at East Carolina. I quickly learned that I could actually stay up to two in the morning and eat pizza. And I loved it. And uh, that didn't really go bode well with uh, dancing every Monday through Thursday from nine to nine to two. So uh, at the end of my third semester, um, the head of the department, Joe Crow, who was a principal dancer for the American Ballet Theater from age 19 to 25, like the most graceful 55-year-old man I've ever seen. So he, he's like, Swan, can you stay after class? And I was like, oh, yes, this is it. Well, he's straight up told me, like, you are not going to make it in this industry. You're not progressing like the rest of the team. And you're going to have to figure out something else. And I was like, let me double major. I'll figure it out. This is all I've ever done. It was my entire identity. And uh, yeah, he was like, absolutely not. We're not going to pass you. <laughs> so <laughs> You need to figure something else out. So I went to an undecided majors um advisor because it was the end of my third semester and I had to sign up for classes and you know she kept asking me like what's your favorite thing to do what's you know what do you want to do and I just couldn't figure it out and finally she was like no literally tell me what your favorite thing to do is do not think about any kind of job anything and at the time I was trying to learn how to surf so I was at the beach a lot and I was like hanging out with my friends at the beach and she asked me well, do you know you can study the beach? And I was like, what is, what are you talking about? And so she ultimately, she signed me up for classes in geography. And I found myself learning about the hydrologic cycle and geology and how earth processes work. And um, because I was a dancer, you know, we grow up competing in class every day. And so I was very attuned to those around me. And now I was a dancer in the scientist world. And so I just worked really hard 
And I also, you know, the, the real turning point was um, a professor came in who would end up becoming my undergrad advisor, my master's advisor, like a mentor for life, still is my mentor. Um, he came into class and he was like, I need some help at the beach. It's a free trip to the beach, free food, free lodging. I just need you to help me to do some field work, which I didn't even know what field work was. So in my eyes, I was like, well, I'm probably going to get a bad grade in this class because I'm a dancer in the science world. So I'm going to definitely go because I can like suck up to this teacher and I don't know, try to get some extra credit or something. Well, I find myself on a dune on the coast of North Carolina, hammering in these things called anemometers. And now I just built like the most advanced one like in the world, which is pretty cool. Um, But I was hammering in these weird things called anemometers that had cups on them and it had a little cable that was connected to this little box. And then from that box, there was another cable connected to the computer in my lap. And I'm sitting on the dune and this big gust of wind blew. And I saw the cups on the anemometer just like go really fast. And then I was looking at the computer screen and I saw the voltage um, on the anemometer just spike. And my mind like blew, like I had a true epiphany And I realized like, oh my God, this is how like science is actually done. And I legitimately got addicted to it. So I went on every field trip, was constantly working with that professor and ultimately ended up doing a master's working under him, started to build my own work during my my own sensors during my PhD. Some of that work got recognized by NASA. And then I... um, built one for Mars, won a bunch of awards for that work and started working for the Navy and then, you know, doing coastal science. Anyway, I, I now, I started from complete failure and I'm so thankful for that failure. And I'm so thankful that someone had the, you know, the guts to be able to just, or the brazenness to just be like, Hey, you're really not going to make it when they're looking at someone who really, really wanted to make it in that industry. And I'm just so thankful for that because it completely changed my life for the better. So that's, that's how I kind of got into, yeah, into coastal science and Mars and studying wind. So the anemometer, this is one of these little things that um, a lot of us, when we were kids may have made like a rudimentary one with a pencil and styrofoam cups and, Kind yes. of like little ping pong balls you cut in yeah, half or yeah, something. Yeah, it's totally a thing, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. So yeah. this is a more advanced one that actually hooks up the computer and actually does something, right? Um, <laughs> so, yes. Uh, so no, absolutely. And you have built uh, arguably one of the most advanced ones on the planet now, right? And so, what is the application? What does this mean? What does this advanced anemometer do? What we, what I built was the first. Uh, it's called a field particle tracking velocimetry system. And essentially, I took a laser beam and I put it through some volume optics collimators, which spread that really high-powered beam into a volume. And then that wavelength of of laser light is only visible whenever it hits something and reflects. So I'm putting it into the air column and you can't really see anything. But when you see to the air with really, really tiny helium bubbles, the helium bubbles are neutrally buoyant. And they follow the structure of the turbulence. And when they move through that volume, it scatters light. And we record that scattered light with high-resolution cameras. And we can triangulate to where every single tiny, tiny helium bubble is. 
And that gives us the first three-dimensional maps of the wind. And we've never done that before. And it's so cool. And it was a really cool project. And the, the whole reason we, we care about turbulence and wind is that anytime you go to the beach um, and you see the dunes, which are the first um, line of defense against ocean waves, uh, they are naturally, they are built by wind. So we want to be able to predict, hey, how quickly is this beach going to recover? If we do X, Y, Z for mitigation efforts, like which one is actually going to capture or slow down the wind enough to drop out the sand grains to then build up the dune? So that's the that's the coastal application. The Mars application is more for human and robotic exploration. Um, those that same process kicks up dust um, from the bouncing of sand grains and. As most of us know, Mars is a dusty planet and home of global dust storms, the home throughout our solar system. So whenever we think about, which we will send people there, um, whenever we think about, you know, inhabiting Mars, um, either with robots, which we're already inhabiting Mars with robots, or with people, we need to understand this natural hazard that is on the red planet. And so that's the utility and use and motivation of it um, on Mars. So how does one make the jump from academia and okay. field work into you have now set up um, your own company, which is called Arcoast. You're the founder and CEO of Arcoast, which is dedicated to uh, mapping and um, exposing coastal erosion. Is that correct? Yes. So what we're doing at Arcoast is we are finding vulnerabilities in coastal landscapes, and then we're telling clients about their vulnerabilities, and then we tell them how to fix it. So right now what's happening is these natural dunes that are built by wind um, are modified by people. We put, we build our beautiful houses or our boardwalks or we want to go to the beach, but we build these permanent structures on something that was never meant to be permanent. And now we're, you're seeing this fight between like, well, this isn't a permanent locate or a permanent um feature that I've built on, but I want it to be permanent. And so we're dealing with mitigation on how to survive both socio, like as a society, but also economically, how do we survive when we've put so much of our energy time and assets into the coastline? So that's where we fit in and why it really is a major problem right now. Okay. So break this down for me. So historically, um, rivers, the coast and everything else were never an immutable thing. They were something that would change over time based on the whims of, so to speak, fate, for lack of a better word. You know, it was literally wind or water, which would then, I mean, in, um, and you're located in Louisiana, we have a lot of these, uh, what they call in Louisiana, they're these oxbow lakes, you know, where basically the river is moved and there's now this remainder of the river, which is, um, uh, uh, they call it an oxbow lake, I guess. That's, I've only run into those yes. in Louisiana. So, but now... If I'm understanding this, historically, we were never really intended to, like, you would build something there, but it was never supposed to be a permanent application. Is that correct? Well, I mean, that's ideally, yes. So Native Americans, they would move with the landscape, right? And you see this around the world where communities that can't, you know, that, they, that, that don't have the infrastructure to build something that permanent or really a reason to build something that permanent, they change with the landscape. So they're much more living with it than just building permanent structures on something that is not meant to be permanent and, and will not be permanent on 
I mean, if you think about our time scale, Earth is constantly changing. And then you think about the human time scale and you're like, wow, even on a human time scale, like we are changing. It's an incredibly powerful thought whenever you start thinking of, of how we are living on something that's never permanent, even though it can feel that in an instant or in a year. But it's never really going to stay that way. I mean, every moment is going to be different in time. So, you know, especially in developed countries, we build very permanent structures and well, I guess permanent in the sense that now we've got to figure out what to do with them. Um, they won't always be there, but we just have to start getting really creative with engineering if we want them to stay there. So they're building, um, I think it's in Dubai, aren't they building those? Um, I mean, you probably get asked questions about this all the time, but they're building those um, artificial kind of, um, I don't know what you'd call them, artificial islands? Um, yes, they are artificial islands. Okay. And they're doing and that. They're beautiful. Now. Well, I know that that's the thing, but what you're telling me is that no matter, no matter what we build and what we make, Mother Earth is eventually going to reclaim it all is what you're telling me. Is that right? I mean, yes, unless we have very creative engineering efforts. And we are, the Army Corps of Engineers um, just released this new effort called Engineering with Nature. And instead of fighting against it, which has historically been our route, it's trying to work with nature to be able to enhance our ability to mitigate for that change. So that's where Arcos come in, comes in because we're trying to also engineer with nature and show folks how they can engineer with nature to enhance nature's ability to rebuild their dune or to stabilize their marsh versus fighting against it and just saying, I don't want this to move. It's really difficult to fight against the most two most powerful forces that are literally causing change, not just on our planet, but others as well. So, so here's my question. You yeah. decided to start your own company. Yeah. What made you decide to do this? Were you mad? I mean, was it a madness thing? I was frustrated. I was very frustrated. I mean, I've fallen in love. Like from that moment on the dune, I've completely fallen in love with being outside, trying to figure out this elusive process of wind and knowing or being tasked with the tasked by the government with the initiative to build something, help us harness this, help us figure out what this is doing. And that's amazing. So I was working for, you know, I do work for NASA and I was employed by the Naval Research Laboratory doing coastal science for naval operations to figure out how a beach will look when we land on any, any particular beach. Um, or, well, another thing about the, <laughs> the Naval Research Lab is that uh, the the Department of Defense, the U.S. Department of Defense, is the largest coastal landowner in the world. So the U.S. has a major investment in for military strategic reasons um, to keep those locations safe. So if they can figure out how they can predict their changing, how they're changing, that's important. So I was tasked with this, you know, like, okay, how are coastlines changing? What do we do? We've got a lot of, you know, investment. Um, and our military framework built on this. Um, and, and my colleagues and myself are building really cool technology, really cool tools to be able to do this. Um, and, you know, some of it works, some of it doesn't. It's constantly changing. It's, you know, we're trying to move with the times at all times. Um, and that, that kind of became part of the problem. I mean, it was by the time that these tools were actually used, it was going to be 10 years and 100 lawyers later before it was getting implemented. And right now with this boom in technology and big data collection, that's just too long of a time period. Yeah. That means by the time it's implemented, the science has changed, the tech has changed, 
And I just kind of started getting jaded. Like I'd got the awards. I've got a ton of publications. And at the end of my life, I was like, you know, I don't want to, at the end of my life, feel like I just got a bunch of publications because my boss told me I needed to. So, you know, I was like, I think I need to actually do something a little different to make an actual impact and bring these really cool tools to people, like everyday people that live on the coast and solve real problems and not wait 10 years because we don't really have 10 years. So that's why I left. It was really out of frustration. So uh, this entire season, the theme is the metal business. It's about having the um, determination and fortitude in the face of adversity. Um, We are going through a, um, I think we're at an inflection point in human history um, from everything from data collection, artificial intelligence, um, and other technologies, we are having advances that are happening on a biannual basis that usually would happen once every 30 years, um, 100 years ago. And so um, I think it's one of the biggest times ever for people to be thinking about their business and where they're going with it, et cetera. And one of the reasons I really wanted you on the show was because you have this kind of non-traditional path and you'd mentioned possibly being, uh, you know, it's it's one thing to have it in your drawer in a lab, right? But it's another thing to actually apply it. Um, I heard a joke told to me a while back about tech transfer at universities, that there is literally, there are literally cures to hundreds of thousand things in uh, sitting in file cabinets somewhere at universities in the U.S., and we have no idea what's in there. Because we have all this great science, all this kind of blue ocean thinking stuff that's been done, and it's just sitting out there. It's languishing because no one's taken out and brought it into the light. I mean, there's some exceptions to that, right? Um, And it's not just about commercializing. It's about how do you apply it and put it in action. So I want to ask about Arcos. What does Arcos do? Tell me about the practical application about what you do. You're talking about living in concert, and you said we don't have 10 years, and I think there's... There's two things in there, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, and then you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. One, the pace of technological change is accelerating, okay? And if you wait 10 years, you might as well wait 100. And two, um, there's something going on with the climate, and we're seeing more um, changes now. I mean, look, climate change is a thing, okay? I come from a scientific family, scientific method. We follow things. You follow it to where the evidence takes you. And the idea that we're in this denial phase, that some, somehow we're still in that phase, we are literally seeing the coastline change in front of us. We're seeing stronger storms. What, we had two cat, four or five hurricanes hit the western coast of Mexico. That's the first time that's been happening in recorded history. Uh, I mean, look, these are just, and by the way, these are symptoms. That's weather, right? But what we're seeing is over time, the climate is changing. And it's not just changing. Like, everybody thinks it's going to be like, it's going to be warm everywhere. Some places are going to be cooler it's going to disrupt patterns um, and islands. Yeah. And look, I'm not an expert in this. This is why you're on here. So you chose a very, I mean, it's an important industry, but it's a very difficult one to be in right now because you have people who either think it's a problem or people who will admit that, well, erosion's happening or the wetlands are gone and whatever it is. So why did you choose to do this? I just went into a, a, a minute long explanations, but what 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 made well, you do this? Well, I mean, I think I I like where you were going with that. Um, I started I started this because the problem is real, and it doesn't matter if you're, you know, Republican or a Democrat or if you believe in climate change or if you don't. In particular, that's the problem here, and or that's not a problem here in Louisiana because people very much see the lack of ability to keep land. I mean, it is not a 
red or blue problem here. It is, everyone knows it's real. Um, and, and the interesting thing is that people talk about climate change or sea level rise or changes to the coast or erosion as something that will happen in the future, but it's been happening in Louisiana for a really long time. We've lost entire cemeteries. We've lost a community that's been officially displaced by the government already. It is not a, this is a future problem. This is a right now problem. Um, and I'd say the same thing. I, I don't really find it to be a political issue in North Carolina, where I'm from. I mean, it is a very divided state right now politically. Everyone sees the beaches eroding. It's not. It's not a political issue. So for me, I'm not concerned about the politics of it or if someone believes in it or not. The the American taxpayer is putting, and they have no idea, most of them, um, so much of their tax dollars are going to coastal erosion uh, mitigation. So for, every, for two miles of beach that is getting nourished, it's about $40 million, and that's every five years. That's two miles, two miles of beach. This has been exponentially increasing as these permanent structures are built on these things that are trying to move inland. All that sand on the East Coast was deposited about 15,000 years ago um, from, you know, glacial processes. And so that is you know, not going to be, there, there's no more sediment available fast enough. So now we have to dredge some of that material off the coast in, um, or offshore, bring it to the beach. That process is very expensive. Two miles, $40 million. If you think about the length of coastline that we have and the number of projects we're doing, it's insanity. We are spending billions of dollars. The federal government, so the American taxpayer, is paying 50% most of the time, if not more, 50% of the cost of that. So that's $20 million for two miles of coast every five years on average. That's insane. The sand is incredibly expensive. And so we have to retain it. Our coast comes in where we're saying, here's how we retain this. Let's facilitate um, deposition of that very now very expensive sand, facilitate the deposition of that into the dunes. Let's find out automated in an automated fashion where you can do that, where it's going to be effective and where it's not going to be effective. So I'm not worried about a political side of it. It's not a problem because whether you believe it or not, you're definitely paying for it. Uh, 50% of federal dollars, uh, then about 25% of state dollars goes towards uh, the nourishment projects. And then the rest is uh, local taxpayer dollars. So there is some, that's like on average, but those are like conservative numbers for it. So yeah, I'm astounded when someone doesn't believe in coastal erosion. I actually don't really get that a lot. Um, but when someone does, it's like you've been paying for it for a really long time and your money is going to literally, it's more and more and more is going to go to that. So right now, the reason I wanted to start Arcos and why it's perfect for right now is that, as you mentioned, we're at an inflection point. We have the capability of collecting big data. And that's amazing. And we didn't before have the ability to analyze big data. Max Planck, one of my favorite statements from Max Planck is that science advances one death at a time. And essentially what he's saying is that as one scientist dies, like we finally got one good theory. And then the next one comes along, he does a lifetime of work on the same problem and we got another one. Well, what's, what's been happening 
um, in the coastal world and the coastal coastal science really had a big boom um, after Normandy because of the, the beaches. And we had a real big issue with predicting what that beach would look like. And we lost a ton of American soldiers because of that. So whenever um, that effort was over, there was the, the U S government was like, we're never going to let that happen again. We need to study the coastline. So huh. a bunch of money went into that. What's happening right now is there are all these professionals who have, you know, come from this post Normandy situation and they're, you know, doing field work. They're figuring out how coastlines look and they're doing incredible science. I mean, like I am so impressed every day when I look at the papers being published, the technology being used. It is unbelievable. I'm so impressed by my colleagues Um, and just how far we've come in the last 10 years in particular, but really the last like 20, 30 years, it's been, it's been awesome. But, you know, imagine being in the Netherlands collecting data and then you go to the Gulf Coast, United States, and you collect data. Then you go to California. Then you go to, you know, a number of different places. There's, there's difference in geologic framework. There's difference in your winds, waves, tides. Everything is different. Maybe the way you collected the data was different. So trying to come up with a unifying theory was really difficult because the data was collected in sparse locations and trying to have a human brain synthesize all of that kind of disparate data was really difficult. Well, now we have the ability to collect more consistent data, know how the data of data quality is important for model development and predictions. And then now we have machine learning, which has totally changed everything. That is our ability to be able to do either unsupervised, which is just straight raw data predictions, or supervised training where we kind of label the data and we say, hey, this is a dune, this is a coast, whatever. We can start organizing our data, making sure that we have good data going into a model, and then have something that's much better than just a single human mind analyzing all that and predicting what, where the problem is or how, what, which mitigation strategy is going to work more efficiently at this location with this waves, winds, tides, etc. So for the first time in human history, we are like AI, and in particular, I will talk about machine learning and AI, um, has given us the ability to analyze large data sets where we weren't able to physically do that um, in the past. So who are the clients for Arcos? Is it government? Is it enterprise? Who, who are the people that you're trying to get in front of? So, you know, you were asking like, what are the challenges? What's a metal business? <laughs> um, my challenge is finding my customer and product market fit. So I was working for the government. I know they have a problem. They are paying actually billions of dollars to fix that problem. But to get government contracts, it's very, there's the, the sell cycles are very short. So while I'm waiting on getting those contracts, I have to find product market fit in a different market segment, which is homeowners, HOAs, or community associations, or commercial properties like oil and gas that are on coast. Port Bouchon is a brilliant example of that. Um, So I have had to figure out how I'm going to market this and who am I going to market it to. The government knows we need it, and I know they need it for military and also a number of other reasons. Um, how do I tell the everyday person to change their behavior to start re- making their, their personal coastline more resilient? 
And so that's, so right now our customers are, we have um, homeowners, individual homeowners, we have a property management company, we have a community association, we have the National Wildlife Federation that want us to monitor some ducks on limited terraces down at Neptune Pass. We're also working for the state. So we're kind of, our customer base is anyone with a coastal problem, but that's not really, from a business standpoint, it's not really a smart way to approach it. So I'm having to, my, my issue is having to find out what, what my beachhead market is, which has been a bit difficult. So you said that, um, you said the government sales cycle is short. Did you mean long? I or... meant long. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yes. No, I, I was, um, no, it's, it's okay. Um, so here's my thing. Okay. So you, you said you're going after these things, trying to find these people. And, and look, that's the thing. We all want to do something that we love doing. And it's obvious as you love doing what you do. But we almost always mischaracterize in business or misunderstand who our target market is. And a lot of times we, uh, we have a revisionist version of history later when we make it. <laughs> now, and, and that's the thing. I'd love to have you on the show in five yeah. years or something like that. And you're like, oh, I made it. I knew my market was X from the get-go, right? <laughs> and it happens all the time. Somebody does it and they, 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 and they act like they were, born, they were born on third base and act like they hit a home run kind of thing. It's, it's a joke. But the reality of it in business is that we don't want to admit that we don't know. And we back into things a lot of ways. I was thinking about like the AlphaGo project. Um, and I don't know if you remember. What when... is the AlphaGo? Okay, so AlphaGo was um, DeepMind built a machine to beat the world's Go player, and Go is um, Go is like an order of magnitude, like a thousand uh, fold more complicated than chess. Okay, so when you play Go, okay. the traditional game of Go, placing the stones on the board, etc., there's like ten to the thirty-five to the seventeenth number of permutations and moods. I mean, it's it's more <laughs> okay. than there are grains of sand in the universe, or something absurd, right? What? Um, yeah, it's it's really it's maybe not quite that, but it's 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 up there. It's way up there, because literally it's a nineteen by nineteen grid, and I don't want to go into Go right now, but it's a really cool, little fun game if you want to play it. Um, and they built a machine, Deep Deep Mind uh, built a machine to beat the world's Go player. Because you beat a chess player, you know, in the 90s, right? You know, Kasparov loses the Deep Blue, I think, in the late 90s or whatever it was. Um, but one of the things they did with AlphaGo was they had it start playing itself towards its end states. Okay, so it started playing millions of games against itself and formulating different strategies, right? And I was thinking about, like, it's not the same thing, but with deep learning in these neural networks, etc., um, using synthetic data, you could actually, if you could get enough data, you could start modeling events and you could start modeling. I mean, that's what you're doing kind of with the wind data, right? You're saying, what is the best berm? Or I'm making up terms. I don't know if a berm is a thing. I just, I've heard it. It, a is, a, it is a thing. Good a, job. <laughs> a, berm is, a berm is something. And uh, I, yes. It is, yeah. Yes, I, I'll, take, I'll take berms for 200, Alex. So, um, <laughs> so I was thinking about, um, so when you're doing these things and deep modeling, now you have, you have the processing power to look at this data. We've been collecting data mm -hmm. for years. So with all this, you've collected all this, this, yeah. this crazy amount of data. I was wondering about like synth uh, synthetic data, like now modeling mm -hmm. things or something like that. Yes. Can, are you, are you at the place now where you can model a category four hurricane, what it would do to the coastline or something like that? I mean, there's a ton of data points in there, right? Millions of data points all yes. at the same time. Is this yeah. something you actually are able to model now? I would not me personally. Um, is that something that many people can model? Absolutely, it it one hundred percent is. Um, and there's, you know, there's a number of different models, a number of different ways that you can parameterize a single model. So um, 
one of my colleagues, Alison Pinko, does ensemble modeling. And so that's where there's a bunch of different models that are trying to predict how a coastline will change, what inundation levels would be. And they come up with some kind of probability at the end of like, okay, based on all the models, this is the probability that X will happen. So that that is definitely a capability. Um, Delft 3D is a program that can do that. There's also, I want to highlight the USGS, Meg Pompson at the USGS. She um, actually is my inspiration for using machine learning to analyze coastlines. So she works on the total water level predictions for the USGS, in particular in, you know, on coastlines. And they're using incredibly sophisticated model. They don't actually have to use synthetic data because they have real data. They have lots and lots of real data. Um, but the um, continuity of that data in time, so the temporal resolution of the data is not always the same. For example, on all of those models, you need to know what the beach bathymetry and the subaerial topography look like, because that's ultimately going to tell you where the water is going to be funneled. And I am, I am synthesizing or, or I'm making very simple statements about something that is incredibly complex. So know that there's much more that goes into this. But essentially, it's going to tell you where the water will go and where you'll have flooding. The problem is that it's really difficult to get that data of the bathymetry because it's changing with every wind event or wave event that's over some threshold to mobilize the sand grains underwater or mobilize the sand grains on the beach. And once those things change, the model will change. Where it will go will change. We right now are taking those three-dimensional measurements um, at a very infrequent uh, temporal resolution. Sometimes it's two years. Sometimes it's the last big storm event that we have, which is a, a big event. So it's out of equilibrium. So the models need help with actual data, like the actual physical data of bathymetry and topography. And our coast is providing that data for the subaerial topography because that's ultimately where it's going to get funneled. That's the we we're finding the weakness in the dune and we're saying, hey, this is what you do here. We're going to send an alert to you and we're going to say you need to do something. And these are your three options. And this option has the highest probability of success to increase land or make your land more resilient. That's what we're doing. Um want to switch gears just for a minute. Um, <laughs> I think finding product market fit, like putting my business hat on and not my scientist hat, like I'm a scientist by trade. I'm, I'm, I've never been an entrepreneur before a year and a half ago. So it's a pretty steep learning curve. I had a product that I was going to have to build myself, which I did. And I knew that there was a need for it because the government was paying is and is still paying billions of dollars for this type of technology. Um, but getting out on my own means I lose those affiliations. And so it's harder for the government to pay me ultimately. So you have to get back into the cycle. And that meant that I had to, because the government sales cycles are long, that meant that I had to find people who would want this on an everyday person level. So a homeowner or a community association or people that are actually doing something to their dunes and they're just making wild guesses. They're like, I don't know, I guess I'll put things here. So I found this problem and it's kind of evolved or how I address this problem. Like it's kind of evolved over time 
but it's also evolving with me figuring out like the product market fit for much shorter sales cycles. So that's been the the challenge is when I first came out, I thought, oh, I've got I've got a product. I know who needs it. I'm going to leave and build it. But when I left and I really got into it, I realized, oh, this is not going to be quick. This is going to take years for me to get on a government contract. And so I've had to pivot a bit to, and I think it's actually so much better. Like, I'm so glad I tried that and failed again because it's so much better. I actually love the product more because I've had to tweak it for everyday people, which has given me like a new level of excitement and energy because it's, I think it's a way better product now. So I'm just excited. Like think of us as like the ring camera of coastal resilience. Like imagine getting a ring, you, you go on, you want to have someone manage your dunes for you. You put our cameras up. We're going to recreate your three-dimensional landscape. We're going to scan your landscape every single day. It's going to find the vulnerability in your landscape. It's going to send you an alert. And then we tell you how to fix it. And if you want, we will connect you with a local contractor that will go and fix it. That's freaking awesome because that gives people the power to manage their landscape when they've never had the power to really manage it with the latest science and tech. So that's what I'm really, really excited about. I think it's way better that I ultimately failed again, trying something, failing again, and then finding like the new, you know, more app, more applicable and impactful way to have our business like run. Um. I have a couple follow-up questions, and I know we're coming to the end of our time, but if you could go back in time and tell um, Dr. Swan a decade ago, um, could to give her some advice, what advice would you give her? Yeah, just don't worry about what other people are going to say. I mean, I, will, I would tell myself, you're going to hear no way more times than you're going to hear yes. Anytime you're building something new, or you're challenging the status quo, or you've got this crazy idea and you really want to make it work, people will only tell you most of the time how it's not going to work. And you have to really just keep believing and like not caring what other people think. I mean, and there are some great ideas or there are great things people will talk about with you. But most of the time you're going to hear no and people are going to tell you how it's not going to work. And just don't get worried about that. Like, just keep, keep pushing forward if you believe in it. And if you know it'll work, just do it. Just, just keep, keep going. So, yeah, I wish I would have cared a lot less about people's opinions of my, my crazy ideas because it paid off for me to ultimately persevere through all of that. So, yeah, that's what I would tell myself. Got that one. And uh, I know we're, we're right at the end here. One final question for you. Mm -hmm. What do you want your... What do you want your legacy on this to be a decade from now? What do you want to look back? So we just went looking back, what you tell yourself. What looking forward, what do you want to accomplish in the next decade with this? I want to have um, global, like a global distribution of our R-Coast sensors and detecting vulnerabilities for people and managing coastlines at a local individual level. Um, I want to be collecting that data at a resolution and classifying that data in a way that makes sense for AI and using other predictive measures where we can, we really need like good data going in. So we have good data going out. I want to have 
those two things set up and really synergize so that we can really make an impact and have an individual feel like they're actually making an impact. Well, Dr. Swan, thank you so much today for coming on the show. This has been delightful <laughs> and a lot of fun. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is great. I will talk about windblown sand and coastlines like until my face is blue. So I love talking about it and can do that anytime. You're in good company here. Thank you again, uh, Dr. Christy Swan with Our Coast. And thanks for coming on the show today. And that brings this episode of The Buck Stops here to a close. We will be taking a break for the holidays. We wish you and yours a happy holiday season and hope you get to eat some good food and spend time with your loved ones and friends. We'll be back the second week in January. Please like and subscribe on any place you listen to good podcasts or follow us on social media for updates, our newsletters, and some amazing stuff coming for you in the new year. With that, take care. Go out there and do something amazing.